Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome back to part two of the Ocean Gate episode. We explored who Stockton Rush was, the warnings provided to the Ocean Gate team, and the kind of pressure that the Titan could have been under. Let me give you a quick rundown on what I'm covering. First, we're going to look at the Titan's construction. Why carbon fiber is not always recommended, or been tested in underwater high pressure environments. What the word implosion means when applied to a human, the timeline of the Titan itself and its demise, potential design flaws that were discovered early on by pre-Titan voyage passengers, and inputs from experts, including James Cameron, on key design flaws, and those unfortunate souls that were taken from us, plus so much more. First things first, let's look at the Titan's construction. Now I have the schematics in front of me, courtesy of Wiki and other news sources, which will be in the uh, episode bibliography and show notes. So I'll go through the submersible piece by piece and explain in the best of my ability what it looks like. And you might hear the rain outside because it's raining like crazy, so bear with me. At first glance on its side, it looks like a cylinder with a pointed tip at its tail. If I was going to explain it visually in a way that was akin to what does this thing look like? Imagine a broad bean pod or a snow pea, a sort of envelope with a tip on one side. It's actually quite a nice looking design. So we have the basic design down pat, essentially a snow pea pod. So what of the hatches and bips and bops on the Titan? The forward hatch is on the left side with a 380mm acrylic viewport on the most flat side of the cylinder, so the furthest part away from the tip. Think of it as the iris of your eyeball, and the porthole centre is the pupil itself, peering into the seas below. It's quite a large area that's visible to the exterior of the hull. The submersible's pressure hull is made up of three main components. First, we have two hemispherical titanium end caps, a means of strengthening the capsule. So two hemispherical caps, like a bottle lid, on either end of the cylinder, which are joined to a cylindrical carbon fiber composite hull. Carbon fiber is important here, mates, and I'll come back to this. Securing this carbon fiber hull is the connection of titanium interface pieces that are bonded to the carbon fiber hull and bolted to the end caps. Again, I'll come back to that as well, because it is critical in understanding the possible reason for the demise of the Titan and what experts point to as its core design flaw. Now, to protect the composite hull at the aft end cap, they've added a glass fiber composite shroud to overlay the entirety of a hull, a sort of veil, as it were, fused to the hull at both ends. Now, let's talk about how the submersible gets around and its overall maneuverability. On each side, there are two thrusters, a vertical one, so that's one upwards and downwards, and a horizontal one, tilting left and right. Propulsion across those key axes, helping it get around. These thrusters play a crucial role in navigating the depths, and much like the carbon fiber components, pose a significant flaw in the design as well, based on the performance in previous voyages. When it comes to the Titan's overall dimensions, the sub measures 6.7 meters in length and stands at a height of 2.5 meters, 250 centimeters, or otherwise 8.3 full 30 centimeter rulers tall 
and 22 full-length rulers long. I know it might sound weird the way I describe it regarding rulers, but I feel that everyone knows how long a ruler feels visually, right? So it's easy to visualize how big or small this underwater snow pea pod is. Alternatively, you could just say it was the size of a minivan. But you know, rulers. And after looking at some of the visuals or the photos of the sub itself, five people can definitely fit whilst crouched, without seats by the way, and they would do so for about eight hours straight. So you've got to be comfortable with tight spaces. And I mean, really, really comfortable. Details from the Ocean Gate specification sheet titled Titan 5 Person Submersible 4000 Meters. You can find the sheet in their archives with the date June 2023. Designed by Jeff Sloan, May 10th, 2017. Entitled Composite Submersibles. Now let's talk about those thrusters, because this, my friends, is very interesting. The Titan is equipped with four Inner Space Model 1002 thrusters. Very fancy tech, actually, that can push this 10-ton vehicle through the water at 5.5 kilometers per hour. That is no small feat. So time the number crunch again. I'm not 100% certain of the maps because I'm no genius, but there is a silver lining here. I also won't speak jargon that's going to go over your head. So here's my logic. They are on an eight-hour expedition, traveling 5.5 kilometers per hour with four thrusters to reach a destination of 3,800 feet. I rounded up some values to make it super clean, but what I wanted to find out is how much they traveled every day. You have a guesstimate of when they could have imploded. So I needed to find out how much they could travel, excluding the weights that were on the Titan, weights that were intended to be detached to ascend to the surface at the end of the journey. If a Titan eats through the ocean sea at a speed of 5.5 kilometers per hour, they should technically reach the Titanic, which is at 4,000 meters within 43 minutes and 20 seconds with all thrusters burning. I imagine though that the slow descent of roughly about two hours or an hour and 40 minutes, I believe was what they were trying to go for to avoid the hydrogen bubbles forming in the body, plus a variety of other precautions and checks. But at full throttle, they really could reach the Titanic very, very quickly, which is quite, again, quite impressive, especially for what is essentially an underwater electric motor. Very, very cool. Now, there are some images with fairings of the fiberglass shell mounted directly to the thrusters, which could have posed an issue if the fiberglass was compromised by the pressure. But there are also designs that demonstrate that this was reworked and changed. However, if they had relied on the original design, if the fiberglass was compromised, then who's to say the thrusters could have been used? Or let's say completely destroyed or damaged? And I have my own theories on this, especially based on the previous trips regarding the Titan and how successful they were in the deep blue sea. And on that, I want to talk about some of the concerns about the design and specifically go point by point on the flaws in the design put forward by experts and people like James Cameron who have done a 16-hour submersible dive and have faced challenges. In fact, James Cameron experienced some issues himself that were possibly life-taking if he didn't have the right gear and the right equipment installed in his own submersible. So it's interesting to hear what he has to say about what he thought was a major design flaw. So firstly, how do you get in and out of the submersible? Well, it's a bit different for the Titan and the first time I've ever heard anything like this take place. The submersible is bolted from the outside. So concern one, 17 bolts on the outside exactly that keep hull integrity and everyone locked in. 
Even if they resurfaced, the five members in that submersible would need external assistance to unbolt their ship. So why might this be a problem? Well, let's say the ship drifts, loses tracking, or thrusters malfunction and push it far off where some of the trackers could read. They will float out to sea, and possibly at an unknown depth, praying to be found within a reasonable distance, and above water, mind you, with 96 hours of oxygen available. So even if they were above water and could see the outside world, if they were nowhere near someone or a team that could help them, well, they've got 96 hours to live regardless. That is terrifying. And that's assuming that of that 96 hours, the crew were not panicking, hyperventilating, and consuming more than the average amount of oxygen required at that time. So yeah, I'd be pretty freaked out if I knew I was being bolted into a deep sea coffin like that. That's my interpretation though. Number two, the submersible used composite design. Submersibles are traditionally built with strong contiguous, so adjoining or bonded, materials of the same type and strength. For example, the Deep Sea Challenger is made of high strength steel and titanium with a sphere for equal pressure resistance of forged steel. Again, steel. These materials are known for their strength and designed for extreme pressure and constant or constantly equal material strength. So there is a less likely chance, let's say in steel, to have a part of the steel fracture while the other part's fine. There's an equal spread and measurability of the strength of steel. One that is much easier to detect. This is very important. So why might the carbon fiber have been an issue? Submersibles don't usually use composite materials like carbon fiber and steel together, as from my understanding and various news reports and expert insights, it is difficult to maintain integrity across two very different materials. And by integrity, the key idea is water ingress. Translation, your ship is leaking, mates. Carbon fiber doesn't indicate nor express the integrity of its strength well. I'll quote James Cameron to this to further explain. You don't use composite for vessels that are seeing external pressure. It's insidious the way composite carbon fiber materials fail at pressure. They fail over time. Each dive adds more and more microscopic damage. So yes, they operated the sub safely to Titanic last year and the year before, but it was only a matter of time before it caught up with them, says James. To me, this makes sense because the Titan had made dives before, albeit to my understanding, not to the Titanic specifically, but close. And every dive, would have damaged that carbon fiber hull bit by bit without anyone realizing it, without a clean way of measuring it either. A simple eye test would at first appear fine until you touch it or submerge it. Or if you're particularly savvy, you could have taken a piece of it and investigated its integrity under a microscope. And you might have seen your hull degrade over time bit by bit after each dive and leaves you and your crew in a specific position where you have no second chances. Admittedly, as a non-engineer myself, dunking that snow piece submersible into the sea over and over again without fail, of which would appear to show that no adverse effect of the pressure were felt by the composite material, I'd be fine. I'd be like, look, it's still there. It seems intact. All's good. But therein lies the issue, the misnomer of using carbon fiber for deep sea dives and why engineers have not used carbon fiber for deep sea dives in the first place and is largely experimental. There's no long-term testing on carbon fiber in a deep sea high pressure environment. 
Point number three, previous tests failed, catastrophically. The early dives by the Titan were, at least now, could have been warning signs of catastrophe. Not because of the externally locked hull or the invisible carbon fiber cracks that could have been potential issues, as mentioned, but also GPS and tracking issues. A previous passenger who voyaged with the Titan to see the wreckage said the vessel was lost because of bad weather last summer. Apparently, a CBS reporter joined the voyage, and as it was descending, the ship completely lost communications with the surface ship. They didn't stipulate how deep it was to my knowledge, but it wasn't that deep. And it was shared that there's no GPS underwater, at least for this ship. So the surface ship is supposed to guide the ship to the shipwreck by sending text messages. Why is this bad? Well, at first I was thinking, are you shitting me? I'm relying on an external factor to guide me. Whilst inside that ship, so deep underwater, I said to myself exactly this when I was reading that information. The reliance on an external, responsible, competent, and reliable team just doesn't cut it for me. People are people, and I wouldn't trust a one-way external trip to potential hazards or faulty gear. The complete lack of control would not make me comfortable in going down to the depth without a mean of directing my own journey. And on that dive, they further shared that communication somehow broke down and the sub never found the wreck, and had to resurface after two and a half hours of being completely lost at sea. Two and a half hours in the abyss. Furthermore, there is no distress beacon, so if it was lost, like I had done previously, there's no way to find it easily or at all. I just... I just don't understand that. Which leads me to my next point. Were there backup systems? Now this really weirded me out. There was so much information about one CBS There was so much information about one CBS reporter stating that, yes, there are roughly seven backup systems for the submersible to resurface. Okay, great. But that same reporter then goes on to say, after going in the submersible, mind you, that as they drifted beneath the sea surface, there were no backup systems for propulsion or other systems within the submersible. So that is immediately concerning. And I quote from the same CBS reporter, there is no backup, there's no escape pod. It gets to the surface or die. Again, I don't understand why that risk was taken. It's immensely huge. And with previous failures in that space, I don't think that cuts it. For me, I, I couldn't go down there knowing that. This also doesn't account delay in alarms as mentioned in part one of this episode. It seems the systems just may not have been available to provide critical information that could have averted this. Now all this information is based off of reports, the news and articles. But of the seven backup systems present, you can only wonder what took place for that implosion to even get to that point. And the more I read about the accounts of people who have taken on those voyages, there were comments made like, you have to find a way to communicate and navigate at the bottom of the ocean. Sometimes you don't have communications. You have maybe just one system instead of all three. So why is that acceptable? Some other lights may flicker. The battery might be low and you need to go to the surface. I mean, that does make sense. There are limitations and constraints in an environment like that. But I think it's important to understand the Moscow school of thought, right? Which is must have, should have, could have, and won't have. And in this case, there are so many must haves that potentially were could-haves, or possibly even should-haves. Hard to say. For me, this is terrifying, not just because the outcomes of having touched death so closely without realizing it, but how cavalier people are with their lives. Any one of those previous trips 
if they had failed further, would have, could have been as catastrophic. I can't help but feel that death and its scythe circled every trip that the Titan made, specifically based on the advice put forward for the carbon fiber hull. And also can't help but feel the people were getting used to the danger, opposed to potentially addressing it. There were comments about including a distress beacon, but that was only in discussion. I'm not certain if they've added it or not. Let's explore now what implosion means and the morbid side to experiencing 387 atmospheres. Let's look at the definition of implosion. Number one, an instant of something collapsing violently inwards. So for example, the star undergoes a violent implosion caused by gravity or a sudden failure or collapse of an organization or system, a global financial implosion. In this case, both definitions are apt, really. The latter explaining the system failure of something on board the Titan itself. That's if there was a system failure. When a submersible or any object implodes, you might be surprised what actually takes place, because I was, and I never thought that what happened could happen underwater. Initially, I read that the air in the Titan would be compressed, generating heat, enough heat to burn those inside to ash, including their bones in a split second. That, however, based on my research, is wrong. I read and I read and I came across an article regarding implosions that involved a physicist explaining what could have happened in that environment. And this is how it went. I've, I've paraphrased it. So how does a submersible implode? In an explosion, for example, the force acts outwards. But for implosion, the force acts inwards. So outwards, inwards. External to internal. When a submersible is deep in the ocean, it experiences the force of its surface due to water pressure. When this force becomes larger than the force that the hull can withstand, the vessel implodes violently. Now, the key point here is this force becomes larger than the force the hull can withstand. So it's not a matter of like, at any point, a hull could just collapse, right? If it's made of contiguous material, it's unlikely, unless it's a defect. With this composite hull, the capability of that hull withstanding that pressure is up to debate. Implosions like explosions are very violent. As the hull breaks apart under the huge external pressure, a large amount of energy is released and the five occupants would have died instantly. The occupants would not have experienced pain or realized what hit them. That is the only silver lining in that space that they did not suffer. It was immediate. Essentially, the world around them would have crumbled like paper in an instant and the incredible pressure of the surrounding environment would be the equivalent of being crushed by the Eiffel Tower. It's awful, disturbing, and pure nightmare fuel. I am not going to entertain a narration of what it could have been like, but I'm sure you get the gist. I think it would be in poor taste if I even attempted. All around, it is just awful. I will, however, speculate what might have happened based off of all this evidence. And this is my speculation, a pure guess, and only an opinion. It is in no way highly accurate. But I'll put forward an opinion based on the timelines and the information that I have at this point. I'm utilizing the Guardian's timeline as a guide to move through the events on June the 16th. It was a Friday. The expedition sets off from St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. On June the 17th, that's a Saturday. There is a delay in going down for the dive because of whether they're going to attempt the dive the next day. June the 18th, Sunday, the submersible aims to start its descent, according to the post by Harding on Instagram, but the Titan actually started its descent a little bit later, according to the US Coast Guard. 
At 12 p.m. GMT or 8 a.m. ET, the submersible starts what should be a two-hour descent to the Titanic wreck nearly 4,000 meters down, according to the U.S. Coast Guard. At 1.45 p.m. GMT or 9.45 a.m. ET, communications between the submersible and the surface vessel are lost one hour and 45 minutes after starting its descent. Now, many speculate that it's at this time, even James Cameron speculated the Titan imploded. James wrote in an email to his colleagues, we've lost some friends and it's on the bottom in pieces right now. That was on the Monday after hearing the loud bangs and the subcoms were lost. He said once there was a loss of transponder and loss of comms, he knew what had happened. The sub had imploded. And echoes were heard through underwater radar that initially indicated that they heard banging, which was initially assumed to be the crew banging on the submersible walls. But now they might believe that it was in fact the implosion underwater echoing outwards. At 7 p.m. GMT or 3 p.m. ET time, Titan is scheduled to return to the surface, the US Coast Guard says, but fails to appear. 9.40 p.m. GMT, 5.40 p.m. ET, the US Coast Guard received reports about an overdue submersible from the research vessel Polar Prince about 900 nautical miles east of Cape Cod on the US coast. June 19th, Monday. US and Canadian ships and planes are swarming the area, some dropping sonar buoys that can monitor the depth of almost 4,000 meters. US Coast Guard R. Admiral John Morgan says officials have also asked commercial vessels for help. June 20th, Tuesday, 2.50 p.m. GMT or 10 a.m. ET, France says it will help with search by deploying Atlante, a ship equipped with a deep sea diving vessel. It is expected to arrive late on Wednesday. During the day, sounds detected over several hours by Canadian Lockhead P-3 Orion aircraft equipped with gear to trace submarines. Banging sounds at 30 minute intervals have been detected. Now I think, I think that's the long lasting echo of that deep, deep, deep sea underwater implosion. June 21st, Wednesday, US Coast Guard, US Navy, Canadian Coast Guard and Ocean Gate Expeditions established a unified command to handle the search. 6 a.m. GMT, 2 a.m. ET, US Coast Guard confirms Canadian P-3 aircraft detected underwater noises. It says remotely operated vehicle ROV searches are directed to the area of the sound and the data is also sent to US Navy experts for analysis. Now remember, at this point, people had thought in the news and the media that this could be the five crew members banging on the ship hull. I don't know if that's possible. I'm not an expert in that space. In my understanding, I'm not sure how five people hitting so deeply under the water would be picked up in that capacity. Uh, and then the deeper you go in the water, the more that sound is warped. But an implosion and that severity of a an auditory impact within the sea would justify that sound carrying on and on and on throughout the sea and slowly dissipating and being warped. So I'm leaning with James on this one that they were gone on the Monday. At 5 p.m. GMT, 1 p.m. ET time, US Coast Guard says more underwater noises were detected and that the search area had increased to two times the size of Connecticut. Again, sound disperses outwardly and omnidirectional, in this case potentially. Later on Wednesday, more vessels, including a French research ship equipped with a deep sea diving vessel, were due to arrive to assist the complex response effort, which covers an area twice the size of Connecticut. June 22nd, Thursday, 10 a.m. GMT, 6 a.m. ET, approximate deadline for when the air in the submersible was expected to run out. 
based on the US Coast Guard's estimate that the Titan could have had up to 96 hours of air supply from the time it was sealed. Around 12pm GMT, 8am ET, two remotely operated vehicles have been deployed as part of the search effort. Experts say it is still unclear whether the submersible is on the surface or on the seabed and warn weeks of intense survey may be required to locate it. Weeks of intense survey. I mean, that's a death sentence, right? They don't have weeks of air to use. Just awful. Around 3 p.m. GMT or 1 a.m. ET, Canadian Navy ship carrying a medical team specializing in dive medicine arrived on the scene. 3.48 GMT or 11.48 a.m. ET, the U.S. Coast Guard says a debris field was discovered within the search area by a remotely operated vehicle ROV near the Titanic wreck. 7 p.m. GMT, 3 p.m. ET, U.S. Coast Guard to hold press conference after announcing discovery of debris. 8 p.m. GMT time, 4 p.m. ET time. Five crew members abroad the submersible Titan were probably killed instantly in a catastrophic implosion, U.S. Coast Guard said. Rear Admiral John Morgan, the first Coast Guard district commander, said a remotely operated vehicle discovered the tail cone of a Titan sub and the debris is consistent with a catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. A large debris field containing five major pieces of the vessel was spotted by a remotely operated vehicle scouring the seabed near the Titanic wreck site 400 miles south of St. John's Newfoundland, officials said. And here's where my theory comes in, and it's purely a theory. So what I think could have potentially gone wrong, based on my current state information. They dive and reach roughly the 1,300 meter mark. The Titan keeps going deeper and deeper, further than previous or even the same and then the external team loses connectivity without a gps and without a means to track them the backup systems malfunction and potentially the thrusters malfunction and they begin to float but at the same time they're still descending unable to stop the momentum getting closer and closer to the threshold getting closer and closer to the threshold that the materials are at least certified for the hull of the ship becomes colder and colder as the pressure increases and increases with potentially more electrical components failing, such as the environmental heating. They descend further and further without any ability to ascend, reaching the 3000 meter depth mark. Cracks in the carbon fiber due to the previous repeated dives lead to an ingress of water and surrounding electrical components are severely damaged, leading to them being unable to drop weights or activate any emergency protocol. They are still unable to descend forever diving deeper. Carbon fiber hull shattered into pieces of the porthole designed for 1,300 meters. Depth shatters and crushes the entirety of the Titan through catastrophic implosion. I feel that this could be the potential outcome and an awful one at that. Only time will tell though when they perform their diagnostics, but before all this, it's all just theory based off the information that I have and import from experts. Lastly, I want to mention the poor souls that were on this expedition who were taken away from us. Shahzada Dawood, 48, a UK-based board member of the Prince's Trust charity and his son Suleiman Dawood, 19. Billionaire Hamish Harding, CEO of Action Aviation in Dubai and French Navy veteran P.H. Nagalot, an adventurer in his own right. Just an awful tragedy all around. Mates, I hope this research piece was interesting and explored areas of knowledge that you might never have thought to explore. For any of you amazing people out there that have heard this information, uh, maybe you want to point out any flaws in my theories or my thinking. As mentioned, this is purely opinion-based. 
and we'll only truly know what happened once the debris is fully analyzed. I learned so much about the risks of underwater exploration and the safety relied upon when working in an environment. The sheer risks involved in diving so deep and how quickly shit can go sideways and before you know it, you're imploding. I don't mean that in a jesting way, things can just go so bad so fast. It's so awfully scary and hammers home how we should never get comfortable when dealing with the depth of the sea, space, or even flight. And especially so when it comes to engineering where a digit out is enough to take thousands and thousands of lives. I hope this episode hits home how easy it is for things to go wrong in situations like this. And even though we say not today death, it's amazing how often we skirt death. I now want to thank my new Patreon, Jandy Prince, for joining me. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you again and welcome you legend. If you want to be a Patreon and support this show, you can visit my Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash SFGT. I don't run ads and I never will run ads. So any love you can send my way is really appreciated. And I want to thank my legendary Ode Knight T Titan, Matto Star, for being amazing and supporting me at this tier. This is the highest tier possible. Thank you again, as always, for your undying support and constant awesomeness. Thanks to you, I'm able to do these research pieces, obtain more music and sound effects, and improve the show constantly. A massive thank you for your support, man. And I'm constantly looking for new research content and using tools, some cheap, some expensive, to really supercharge these episodes. Thank you, you legend. And thank you for your patience in my responses. That is not lost to me, buddy. I really do appreciate it. And the amazing Lezuka Rex, thank you, you cornerstone of this podcast. Your undying support always goes through to paying off overheads, general costs for the show, and new plugins. There's always something awesome out there that will improve the show, and thanks to you and people like you, I can experiment and dabble in that space. The next area is AI voice modulation, which is going to be great. Cheers, you legend, and thank you for your awesome support, man. I really appreciate it. And to my legends, the El Grey Enforcers and my Patreon supporters in general, I'm lucky to have Chad Warren, Just Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, Jane Gumnick, and Jandy Prince. Thank you, you epically and specially kind people. Lots of love your way. Lastly, don't forget to leave a review if you get any time spare. I really love iTunes ones. So if you've got 10 seconds spare, that goes a long way to help me find more epic people like you to listen to the show. And also, I just love reading written responses from lovely listeners. Honestly, it makes my day, it makes my week, and reminds me of why I love doing this. And thank you to all of you that have already done that. Now pour your tea, make it nice. Ensure your flavoring is precise. Like a story, let it flow. Let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Stay a while, have a listen, and as always, I hope to see you again. Have a wonderful week, mates, and I'll catch you next Monday. Cheers.